This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Hey, welcome back. You're in the workplace, and when you hear that music, you think white-collar crime, don't you? Uh, I certainly do. I'm Peter Capelli, professor of management here at the Wharton School, and with me is my colleague Yvonne Baranke, professor of management and business economics here at the Wharton School. Yes, I am. Yes, he is. Fresh from a grant application that's kind oh, yeah. of the exciting, fun things we do here in yeah. the academic world. You know, studies are like, um, yeah, you have to pay first, and then you get you get to do them. So yeah. you need the money first, yeah. And those who do grant applications know it really helps if you do the stuff first and then apply for a grant for it, because then you can be absolutely clear and right about what you're going to do. Otherwise, it's hard to... Uh, to I, comply. I would never do such a thing. <laughs> right? I've certainly done that. Uh, so we're going to talk, speaking of white-collar crime, we're going to talk about white-collar crime right now. And with us is Jesse Isinger, who is the author of The Chicken Shit Club. That's the first time I've been able to say that word on Sirius It's XM. a technical term, I Technical, yeah. Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. Jesse is the author of that book, which appeared... Uh, in 2017, a year ago, he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for National Reporting, and this is a really interesting topic uh, we'd like to talk about at some depth. Jesse, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me, and thank goodness for uh, satellite radio can uh, say all sorts of things. Yeah, I, you know, I've never really used that function here. <laughs> we have a special button we can it's push first. when we're, when we're going to swear. Um, yeah, so, Jesse, let me ask you, maybe just at the be- beginning of, of this, uh, for people who don't know it, haven't seen your book and the recent article in the New York Times um, that you did on this, um, if somebody says, well, I don't know. It seems like we prosecute white-collar crime. What would you tell them? Because I think you're right. We don't. What would you tell them as evidence that, no, we're not doing this? Yeah, well, uh, people can pick up the book now. It's uh, on, uh, now on paperback. But, uh, you know, of course there is some prosecution of white-collar crime, but uh, the actual numbers are way down. Um, we're at a over 20-year low wow. recent year. Um in terms of individuals who are prosecuted for white-collar crime. And my argument is that uh, it's much worse for the really wealthy and powerful. Yeah, we do right. not prosecute the right. top corporate executives right. uh, anymore. And I don't think anybody can uh, remember the last time that we prosecuted a Fortune 500 CEO. It's been yeah. well over a decade. So uh, my, if my colleague Dan O'Meara was here, he, he loves to talk about uh, people who've stolen money from their employers and things. We're still prosecuting the local treasurer and the bank teller who walks off with money. We're still prosecuting those guys, right? Yeah, and, uh, you know, when corporations are caught in the crosshairs of the DOJ, they offer up mid-level executives sometimes. So um, there are prosecutions of those people. Um, executives get th- thrown under the bus, but there are very few, if uh, any, prosecutions of high-level individuals. And then we mm. see now with Robert Mueller exposing what I consider to be our white-collar prosecution crisis, that there are whole swaths of the economy beyond the large corporations that uh, essentially go unpoliced, like high-end real estate or campaign finance or um, even corporate and uh, Washington lobbying for despots and oligarchs and Mm. things like that. Mm -hmm. So is there any research on why there is such a decline in in prosecutions? I mean, did basically the government 
Did it lose the arms race against corporate lawyers, or what? What explains yeah, well, it? I, you know, I try to lay out in my book. Uh, I don't think that there's uh, a lot of great academic research on this, and I'm hoping to uh, spur some with my book. My argument is that uh, really there was a backlash uh, to the aggressive prosecutions in the wake of the NASDAQ bubble bursting. As um, listeners can remember, we prosecuted almost all the top executives from almost all the companies implicated in the kind of accounting fraud pandemic of the late 1990s. So Enron was the marquee prosecution, but WorldCom, mm -hmm. Adelphia, mm -hmm. Tyco, Global Crossing, the list goes on. What, what um, was the backlash, though, Jesse? Backlash from whom? So the backlash was led by the corporate lobby, okay. uh, Chamber of Commerce, okay. and then um, uh, aided by the White Collar Bar, um, focused mainly on the prosecution of Arthur Anderson, the accounting firm that okay. um, was, did the books for Enron and WorldCom and um, was really a handmaiden to uh, their frauds, okay. um, I think, and was a kind of recidivist uh, organization. It was prosecuted by the DOJ and went out of business. And then um, my view, um, unfairly, uh, to, uh, that that prosecution was unfairly tarnished in this lobbying campaign. And um, But the DOJ internalized it and came to believe that they shouldn't prosecute companies aggressively, that mm. there can be all sorts of collateral consequences, the too big to jail or too big to fail problem, as, uh, as they're known. Um, and in the wake of the financial crisis, we really saw it where no top bankers were prosecuted right, uh, after right. the worst financial crisis in the, since the Great yeah. Depression. So is this a big Republican-Democrat divide, uh, or both both parties are feel felt the heat from the corporate world when they were aggressively prosecuting these folks? Both parties are culpable, although for slightly different reasons. Um, I consider this to be the biggest scandal of the Obama administration, that really? they failed yeah. to prosecute uh -huh. uh, any top executives uh, in the wake of the financial crisis, and that um, this is a big Democratic failing. But uh, um, they're slightly different. There used to be an old-line Republican law and order ethos uh, exemplified by uh, the Deputy Attorney General, who's one of the heroes of my book, uh, Larry Thompson. Mm -hmm. um, he's the first deputy attorney general in the Bush administration under John Ashcroft as mm -hmm. attorney general. And also in the 1970s, going back to Stanley Sporkin, who was a Republican, who was the SEC enforcement director and probably right. the most powerful bureaucrat of the era. And mm -hmm. he really uh, um, led the way in fighting white collar securities fraud. Um, and uh, so there was this kind of old line Republican ethos, um, but I think that has really given way to a kind of crony capitalism and uh, looking the other way. And now you see the Trump administration, um, uh, ostensibly Republican, um, nominally Republican, they're essentially leading a regulatory strike. So you mm -hmm. have um, you have uh, corporate fines down 90 percent in the first year of the Trump administration compared wow. to the last year of the Obama administration. And mm -hmm. as I mentioned earlier, or white-collar prosecutions are at an over-20-year low of individuals. Um, now, the Democrats, I um, fault for kind of seeing um, they have a visceral distaste for prosecutions, in my view. They see them as kind of mob justice. In fact, mm. you know, Timothy Geithner, if you famously, uh, if you remember his famous comment was, we aren't seeking Old Testament justice. I think they see it as mob oh, okay. justice. Okay. And instead, what they prefer is kind of systemic reform. So they like Sarbanes. Baines-Oxley in the wake of um, the Nasdaq bubble bursting and the accounting fraud uh, 
uh, scandals, and this time they really concentrated their efforts on Dodd-Frank um, mm-hmm. and systemic reforms. Um, and that has, you know, there's an argument to be made that you, you can't fix a system solely through prosecutions. But my argument is they go hand in hand and yeah. they lend legitimacy to your efforts and undermine your efforts if you don't have prosecutions because people just see the system as being bought off and unfair and unjust and that the rule of law is broken. Right. Do you think that uh, politically that was the case in the last few years or so, the end of the Obama administration in particular? Yes, absolutely. I think that they um, uh, both saw these kind of prosecutions as not a priority um, and um, as ineffective and uh, kind of mob justice, um, and uh, they didn't devote the resources to it. And because mm-hmm. they didn't devote the resources to it at the at Maine Justice and at Preet Bharara at the Southern District of New York, he was U.S. Attorney, um, these uh, people didn't look for the evidence for mm-hmm. crimes. And yep. so when you look, don't look for the evidence, you don't find them. Uh, I don't think they explicitly uh, turned their backs on prosecutions, and I don't think there was an order given by Obama or Holder or Geithner not to prosecute. Um, that uh, I don't believe in those kind of conspiracy theories. I think it was much more of right. a kind of systemic, institutional, learned helplessness. But I right. do argue that this goes beyond the banks and to large corporations, mm-hmm. industrials, retailers, tech companies companies, pharmaceutical companies, and it was building before the financial crisis and persists to today. And I think that it's, uh, I believe that uh, the Department of Justice has lost the will and ability to prosecute top mm-hmm. corporate executives. Is this, I was thinking about Rudy Giuliani when you're saying that, who, who for a while, uh, early in the beginning of his career, right, was seen as kind of a warrior against white collar crime, right? That was the, <laughs> when was that? La- change, late there? 80s, was that it? When was he the warrior? Uh, yeah, late 80s. Um, he prosecuted, yes, you know, in, I think the American public is used to seeing kind of booms, busts, and crackdowns. And um, we saw it with the SNL crisis. We saw it with the NASDAQ bubble bursting. You know, after the 29 crash, we created the entire securities law firmament architecture that we have today. Yeah. And um, the other crown, one of the crowning moments um, was uh, after the junk bond scandals, um, Rudy Giuliani prosecuted arguably the most important, um, most powerful member of Wall Street. Uh, Michael Milken. Mm-hmm. So to his credit, you know, and he used very aggressive tactics. Um, and those aggressive t- tactics were decried by business people, by the white collar bar to this day. And, you know, he got overturned on occasion, too, which I think is, you know, a cost of doing business when you're um, prosecuting very powerful people. Yeah. So uh, I credit Giuliani um, with being aggressive. I think he was slightly excessive. Um, uh, but uh, you need an aggressive prosecutor mm-hmm. and how the mighty have fallen, you know, uh, right. get to uh, what he's doing now. But right. it's uh, different. It's a, uh, it is a uh, stark change from what he was when he was in his prime. Now, when we're talking about uh, prosecutions, the states can do this, too, right? The state's attorney generals, at- attorneys general. Same Absolutely. thing going on there? Same thing going yeah, on? Yeah, so uh, this is why I think that this is really a systemic problem, an institutional problem, and I think it has to do with the way um, prosecutors approach corporate law enforcement. Okay. Um, and what, uh, so this is happening at the state level as well as the federal level. And what, what really this is, and the dirty little secret here, is that we have outsourced and privatized it. And we've outsourced mm. and privatized it mm-hmm. to corporations themselves. Mm. Corporations hire law firms 
and the law firms investigate the corporations. They're, they investigate their clients and produce internal reports, um, internal investigations for those clients about their wrongdoing. And of course, this is uh, an incredibly lucrative business yeah. for mm -hmm. the law firms um, uh, and uh, employs a lot of uh, uh, associates um, uh, who put put in a lot of sweat and tears to uh, produce these very brilliant reports, and then they pr they give the reports to the government. Now the reports oh, are. Oh, is that right? Uh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So hmm. now, now the government, of course, doesn't need to rely on these reports mm -hmm. and conduct its own investigation. But in fact, um, in practice, they do. They rely on them heavily, and they have essentially there's a learned helplessness where they've decided we can't really get involved with investigating a giant global corporation thoroughly enough. Um, and so we need to rely on these kind of investigations. And we can ask mm. them questions and we can poke and prod, um, but we're really, this is really kind of the heart and soul of the investigation. Now, you okay. can imagine, and I believe that these um, investigations are studiously incurious about culpability at the top, at mm. the board level, at, mm -hmm. the, um, at the C-suite. And the reason why is that these um, law firms want to keep their clients. Right. And even if they didn't right. want to keep this one particular client, right. they don't want to develop a reputation as being um, overly aggressive in their investigations because they want future clients. Yeah, you're asking your vendor to in, to investigate you. So, Jesse, make sure I understand how this works. So a company's having a problem, and it looks like something untoward has happened. They hire a law firm to do an investigation, and then to head off prosecution, they hand that investigation over to the prosecutors? Yeah, I think it's um, – so the, it can happen one of two ways generally. One is they can surface the problem internally, and two, they can be responding to inquiries from the government or regulator because of a uh, whistleblower tip or because right. of some other thing. Um, and then the company goes and hires Debevoise and Plimpton or uh, Kirk. Lyndon Ellis or Covington and Burling or you okay. know Paul White, mm. any one of these major firms. And the firms will conduct an internal investigation to try to get to the bottom of it. If this has not gotten beyond the company, it's not a response to the government, then that'll be the last uh, you've ever heard of it, mm. um, unless the government, uh, unless the law firm thinks that the company is... Um, been so egregious that they have to go f forward um, and come forward to the government to tell them what what's going on. And in some cases, they'll do that in order to, one, to kind of um, blunt the inquiry and two, to make a show of cooperation, because if you make a show of cooperation, you um, get better treatment um, okay. in the eventual settlement. Got it. Um, okay. Now, uh, there are there are a couple things to really understand about this. So instead of prosecuting individuals, what the government now focuses on is settlements with corporations for money. That's the sea yeah. change that's happened. Right. Right. Um, and so the, the companies understand that if they look like they're cooperating, they, they'll be able to get a better settlement, a lower dollar amount mm -hmm. than, um, than they would have had otherwise. So they have this good argument. So they have the incentive to make, to cooperate or what well, the government thinks they have the incentive to cooperate. What I argue is they, they have the incentive to appear um, cooperative. Mm -hmm. And so they pay the fine. Nobody's individually accountable, and, and off they go. Folks, we're talking with Jesse Isinger, who's now senior reporter of ProPublica. He's author of the book now out in paperback, The Chicken Shit Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. 
Yeah, I have I have two questions to you. If you know, um, this this is you know very very interesting and um, very detailed. So, you know, everybody's entitled to use the the legal system to their advantage, as they are entitled to <laughs> to use the tax system to their advantage. So, um, so question two question. You know, morality aside, you know, so what's the harm? You know, what's Ooh. the problem that mm. you that this might this might generate in in terms of what you have seen? Mm. And the other question. Can we take the first one there? Because I'm interested in that one, All too. All right. Okay. And yeah, sure. So, uh, no no two-part questions? No two-part questions. <laughs> two-part questions. Responders fr- to, forget uh, them. They forget head. them. This is like the White House here. Yeah. What's the, uh, what's the harm? Yeah. Well, so in that, that first question had two elements to it. One is everybody is entitled to um, a defense. Of course that is true. Yeah. Um, what uh, the courts have done is be very expansive about the rights of white-collar defendants while um, not seeing it in the same way of uh, with street criminals. So in one seminal case that I uh, have a chapter on in the book in KPMG, uh, they're investigating KPMG executives and um, a judge essentially invents a new right for Mm. um, uh, a new constitutional right for executives, which is that they get the best defense money can buy because the corporate they have a right to the corporation um, paying, paying for, for the defense. Them. Oh, okay. Um, mm. Which mm-hmm. uh, which many judges do not agree with, mm-hmm. and uh, it's not really in the Constitution. You have a right to defense, but you don't necessarily have the right for the corporation to buy the most expensive lawyers, who happen to be the corporation's lawyers as well. Can I um, can I just ask you, Jesse, on that one? And we're, we're going to get right back to Yvonne's question, but uh, because it follows here, you write about. Uh, something that happened very recently, and this is Judge T.S. Ellis, who was presiding over the Paul Manafort case, and many people believe he was openly hostile to the prosecution. Do you think he was? And if so, why? Yeah, I mean, uh, don't take my word for it. Uh, Nancy Gertner, a really well-respected judge who's uh, up at now at Harvard, uh, said that he was uh, biased and un- unethical. Um, um, I And I think that has to do with the fact that they see white-collar defendants as very sympathetic okay. uh, light um, in a way that they do not see um, – Regulators and even prosecutors and judges now uh, and have for over a decade kind of see um, these executives and white collar defendants as, uh, you know, as people who've maybe made mistakes, but um, aren't really hard bitten criminals. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And so they if they bend over backwards to afford them the kind of rights that street criminals don't have. Now, yeah. I believe, you know, every defendant should have the, these kind of rights and that the, the, there should be a fairness and equity in the system so the street criminals should get the same kinds of rights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so so good just to so get back that, to my, my question, um, so what do you think is the harm uh, exactly. if this well, happens? So that, I think that brings me to your question and to my point, which is that um, by not prosecuting a certain class of people, it um, creates a two-tiered justice system in this country, okay. where we disproportionately prosecute certain class of people, disproportionately poor, disproportionately people of color, and we give another class of people, disproportionately white male uh, and powerful and wealthy, um, uh, impunity to commit crimes. And I think that fundamentally threatens the fairness of our justice mm-hmm. system right. and delegitimizes 
our democracy. And, and, and it cr- creates a lot of this that. anger we're seeing, right? That I the system isn't fair. I yeah. think that this contributed to the populist anger. That yep. If you walk into any bar in America and ask them, what do you know about the financial crisis? Most people be able to say, well, no, nobody uh, was held accountable. Right. Nobody went to right. jail. Yeah. Uh, nobody went to prison. Right. And, um, and, so, and I think they see that as fundamentally unfair and that undergirded um, the, the unrest that led uh, contributed to Trump. I would mm-hmm. not draw a straight mm-hmm. line from yep. the lack of prosecutions to Trump, but I think it contributed mm-hmm. to it. So one last question here, Jesse, and that's about um, how to hold companies accountable, because we're management professors here, and one of the things that we know is that companies have cultures, companies have people in them who take their cues from uh, attitudes and behaviors of people at the top. It's hard sometimes to find any kind of smoking gun. So if you are trying to prosecute, let's say, in Wells Fargo, right, where lots of bad things went on for quite a while, and there's never an order written down anywhere telling, you know, the salespeople at the local branches to go give lots of open lots of accounts for people, but it was in the water of the place. So is it is it particularly, I mean, what do you do in that case? If you wanted to prosecute, what do you do? Well, um, so prosecutors view their fines and their remedial efforts as ways to fix the broken cultures at these companies. Okay. So right. that, is their, yeah. um, that is their goal. Okay. Um, and, um, in fact, they say uh, prosecuting one individual doesn't work to fix the culture. And I argue that that is exactly wrong. Um, okay. And it's wrong for two reasons. One is that their regime is not working. Um, so you see recidivist corporations. Wells Fargo is mm. uh, exhibit mm-hmm. A right now of companies that have gotten fined repeatedly for various um, problems and uh, continue to have broken cultures and continue to run afoul of the law. Yep. But uh, Wells Fargo isn't the only one. J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, BP, Walmart, the list goes on and on. Um, and uh, so the regime of settling for money and fining does not work. And what I think works in Instead, it would be holding the highest level people accountable, and mm-hmm. when you can, criminally. Mm-hmm. And um, now, this I'm not calling for cowboy prosecutions or unwarranted prosecutions, but I'm calling for, to develop the evidence through investigative techniques that will lead you to the highest culpable individual and try to prosecute them, because I think that deters corporate crime mm-hmm. like no other thing. Mm-hmm. The reason why I think deterrence works in this arena is that... Executives are well-informed people um, who pay attention to the news, will see and hear about their compatriots Mm -hmm. and brethren who are prosecuted, and they have reputations to protect. Yep, they care um, about that. And assets. Yeah. Right. Jesse, we should probably let you go. Thanks very much for being with us. Jesse Isinger is a senior reporter now for ProPublica, author of the book, The Chicken Shit Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. We're going to take a break here and come right back in just a minute. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.